some changes let's change the way we eat let's change the way we live and let's change the way we treat each other you see the old way wasn't working so it's on us to really do downplay the significance of a lot of these subjects and they've tried to make it all one thing or all the other oh it's all brain chemistry or oh it's all your behavior all these things intermingle we can't separate them out from one another when we're looking at these problems when you tune in here give me a thumbs up if you can hear me okay I'm on a delay watching, so give me a thumbs up as soon as you hear this and let me know that all of the sound is good and you guys can hear me. So let's dive in. So let's talk about, first of all, is there such a thing as food addiction, sugar addiction? How does that relate to the habits that we're talking about? Well, here's a little quote out of, uh, I found this on a blog that I read a couple years back, but I revisited it and then looked at the studies. And from one of the studies, scientists have found opioid activity in certain grains. They've also discovered similar uh, properties in these foods. So these foods, these grains, dairy, can act as opioids and as stimulants. And that's very important. If you've ever tried to go off of them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The first time I ever took grains out of my diet intentionally, I had an opioid withdrawal. I didn't know what the hell was going on, all right? It was like 2, 3 a.m. I was sitting, staring at the ceiling. I could not fall asleep. I felt wired. I did not know what was going on with me. So it's really important to understand how these things can impact our brain, and especially as we're trying to change it. Let's, so let's look at a little bit more of this brain chemistry. When people talk about taking antidepressants, they're generally talking about SSRIs, which are ways of getting more serotonin into the um, brain cells, into the neurons. The problem with this is that, well, for number one, is that we can develop a resistance to it or we can um, develop a need for a higher level. So if you've ever been on an antidepressant, you know exactly what this feels like, as I have. You start off, things feel really good, maybe a week into it, maybe a couple weeks into it, but then the amount that you need ends up increasing inevitably, or you don't increase the amount and you don't get the same effect. And because we start to become desensitized to serotonin that's being um, reabsorbed via these medications, so we start to develop a resistance to the medication. The interesting thing in this context is that certain foods can have a similar effect. How this works, and this is from the quote right here, is that when we eat a food that's really high in uh, glycemic load, which means it's gonna really elevate our sugar, our blood sugar really quickly, that process is going to remove a lot of things from the bloodstream except for tryptophan. So then tryptophan is free to get into our brain and tryptophan is the precursor to serotonin. So that's why these foods give you this instantaneous high is that the tryptophan is getting to your brain fast. You have a boost in serotonin. You're also combined with the sugar as, an ex, as a stimulant or the other opioid type foods. Remember these uh, grains or the dairy. So you're getting this one-two punch. You're having the tryptophan hit your brain and give you serotonin. You're getting this rush of energy or false energy. You're tying this in with dopamine. So now you're uh, you know um, activating the dopamine reward system. And over time, this is what starts to build that habit. 
which is what we're going to get into. First off, I really want to jump into caffeine real quick. So this is an outline from um, a great book, Paul Checks, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy. It's also found on a blog post that I'm linking into here, and it shows your normal response. This black line right here is your cortisol level. Now, every time we hear cortisol, we go, ooh, bad hormone makes us fat, right? Okay, true, not true. Cortisol itself is a natural um, hormone. It's obviously a natural hormone. It's in my body, right? Okay, I'm talking over myself, but it's a needed hormone. It's not that cortisol is bad. Is that too much cortisol at the wrong time of days is what causes the problem. Now, for anybody that's ever had an adrenal problem, you know, as I have, that this cycle ends up flipping on itself. You wake up and your and your cortisol level, this black line is way down here where this white line should be. By the way, this white line is growth hormone. So as you can see, as our cortisol winds down and comes out of our bloodstream, our growth hormone is increasing. And that's the one-two effect that we have throughout the day. Cortisol is elevated in the morning, gets us alert, gets us ready for the day, starts to decrease as the day goes along. Then by the time the sun starts to set, we're winding down, our growth hormones kicking in to make sure that we get our physical repair and our psychological repair during the nighttime, mostly physical repair. But when we flip this, when we have elevated cortisol throughout the day, look what it does right here to our growth hormone. Okay, it pushes it back. I don't know if you saw the time frame, but check out this time frame here. If we're getting to bed in a natural circadian rhythm pattern around sundown, so maybe at the latest, you know, 9 to 10 p.m., I know I don't do that a lot. I get one vote in my household so when I go to bed, and there's two votes, and they generally seem to not agree with mine. So, or we get in the habit like I've been in, and a lot of parents get in where you're super tired during the day, you haven't had a lot of time, you're stressed you know, the kids are finally asleep or your other responsibilities are finally taken care of and you just want to zone out. You just kind of want to, you know, suck in some uh, some more stress via your phone, your TV, those things that have electromagnetic properties. Those things can also start to kick into this. So it's a one-two combo again. Okay, so this is our natural. So look at this. Cortisol elevated all day throughout the day. Caffeine is directly going to feed into this over time. This is where we start to have these adrenal problems. Now, there's been a uh, movement against the term adrenal fatigue. There's actually a study that I can include in the document here that shows that there's no such thing as adrenal fatigue, and that's, okay, that's fine. Let's not call it adrenal fatigue, but I'm gonna give you a different term as we get into it because there is such a thing when this gets, when your regulation is thrown out of whack like this, it is a 100% factual thing. This is a real phenomenon. It's not that adrenal fatigue doesn't exist and it's just made up. It's that it was being looked at wrong. There was, you know, a pushback against it. Fine. So let's change the way we talk about it. Let's make sure we're congruent. But this is a real state that we can get into. Our stress hormones can be way out of whack. It can definitely uh, decrease our physical and psychological repair. Our sleep schedules get out of whack. This is no, worth noting in this context too, because if you've ever had the condition where you fall asleep like earlier, like maybe you're just drained, exhausted, 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 and you just absolutely crash, you know, around uh, before your normal bedtime, you're just so exhausted from the day that you just finally just boof, pass out wherever you finally can, but then you pop back wide awake in an hour, two hours, or three hours, and then you're awake during the middle of the night. What the hell has gone on? Well your body has gotten so used to producing and having all this cortisol in it throughout the day that even when you're asleep, this is elevated. 
And this is a real problem. Another addition um, challenge that comes with the caffeine is that caffeine on general, for a lot of people, will have a half-life of about six hours, depending on how you metabolize it. So half-life, what that means is let's say your average coffee that you're drinking in the morning. Now, when we were talking about coffee too, we we're talking like about an eight, maybe 10 ounce cup of coffee. Most people who get to coffee dependent are consuming way more than that, okay? So, but we're just in this context, we're going to look at like 100 to 120 milligram dose of caffeine. And what's going to happen is I drink that caffeine around whatever, when I wake up 6, 7 a.m., it has a half-life. So that means if I'm getting 100 milligrams first thing in the morning at 6 a.m. by noon, half of that amount is left. So now I'm, now my, uh, energy that that's fake energy that I was produced by the caffeine the caffeine is putting me into a flight or fight response I'm getting all that rush from the adrenaline the norepinephrine the epinephrine I'm getting really elevated my adrenals are working overtime I'm getting excited now I'm crashing but that's some of that caffeine is still in my system so now you go for the second coffee if you're taking in coffee in the afternoon let's say you're taking in one around 2 to 4 p.m. as I have in the past and sometimes I still have and that's the purpose of this podcast. It's really holding me accountable to make some changes um, as I go through my personal journey here with this, that if you take that in in the evenings or in the late afternoons, then you're still going to have caffeine in your system throughout most of the night. And that's going to contribute to this cycle of popping awake, not being able to stay asleep. Okay. Here are some signs and symptoms of not of lacking physical recovery. Um, here, this is the one everybody talks about, increased body fat. So let's jump off track here for just a second. So you'll read a lot of literature, and we're going to actually cover this in just a minute here on a Chris Kresser podcast. I have some excerpts from his podcast because you'll hear caffeine boosts your metabolism. It increases your metabolism by whatever, 8%, 10%. And it sounds like a great thing. Great. I drink my coffee. My metabolism's elevated. I'm going to be burning all this body fat. Sweet. Give me the coffee. Not so fast. Turns out it's a, a personal thing. Half the people might benefit from it. Half, uh, roughly half in the population won't. If you're not benefiting from it, you're going to end up increasing body fat because that cortisol level is going to be elevated and your metabolism is going to be ended up being affected a little bit. Plus, if it's interfering with your sleep and you're not recovering, you know, it's just winding up this cycle. Okay. Um, here's a couple quotes. If you drink this is from the Chris Kresser podcast. He's talking to Steve Wright. If you drink coffee and later in the day you feel exhausted and your energy crashes, you might think that actually it is a sign that you need more coffee, as I said, but it's often a sign that the coffee is screwing with your adrenal function. If you drink it and you feel jittery and kind of wired afterwards or hyper-stimulated, that's probably not a good idea. Now, I definitely fall, I can testify that that is definitely me. I get that wired rush feeling when I drink coffee. It's not just a little bit of an uplift. It's a huge huge kick okay so bear that keep that in mind as we keep moving forward here if you drink it and you feel jittery and kind of wired afterwards or hyper stimulated that's probably not a good idea i just want to repeat that so it really sinks in what you should feel if you're doing well with it and it's just kind of a natural lift maybe an improvement in mood and just a natural improvement in mental clarity and it shouldn't have a really big systemic effect on energy production all right that's huge right there I think, as Steve Wright responds, I think those people who claim to be able to just live on coffee, I've been in that state before, and I think that's right before the crash too. All right, Kresser responds, there are people, I don't know that many of them to be honest, but they're out there and they're in some of these studies 
that are able to drink three to four cups of coffee a day with no apparent ill effects. They sleep well, they're able to exercise and improve, and they're not exhausted. They don't have any other signs or symptoms of adrenal fatigue. They don't feel jittery or agitated after they drink the coffee. For these people, it's hard to make an argument against drinking that much coffee. Okay, now they're going on. This is a this is a couple little extra snippets. All right, if you drink coffee and later in the day you feel exhausted and your energy crashes, you might think that actually is a sign that you need coffee, but it's a sign that the coffee is screwing with your adrenal function. Okay, I've already touched on that, but now it feeds into this next sentence or this next passage, which is really crucial. The more accurate term would be hypothalamic. Oh boy, I just. <laughs> I just totally screwed up while I'm live. Hypothalamic pituitary axis dysregulation. Steve Wright asked, did we call that HPA-D like three years ago? HPA-D, yeah, we need to bring that back because adrenal fatigue is just such a problem. It makes doctors roll their eyes and tune out, whereas if they really understood what people meant when they said that they say that is a HPA axis dysregulation, I think they'd be more open to it, but that's a whole other thing. So just keep that in mind, okay? That's again, we're looking at terminology and some problems from this, and there has been a pushback against the term adrenal fatigue and a study showing that it doesn't exist and that it's been, you know, kind of pushed off into the, you know, um, uh, maybe la for better term, lack of scientific health practitioner realm. So let's try to just kind of change that terminology there. This is an really interesting passage that this was the first time I came across this as I was researching this podcast and it was talking about cross reactivity whereas one thing will affect something else okay basically so this is relating coffee to uh, gluten intolerance not necessarily celiac disease but just any form of gluten intolerance okay that means if you're gluten intolerant if you've been diagnosed with either celiac or non-celiac gluten sensitivity I would re recommend it if you can get a Cyrix, a Cyrix Array 4 to see if you're reacting to coffee because if you are, it's the protein to which both in decaf and caffeinated coffee. So if you can't tolerate coffee and you wonder why, it may not have anything to do with caffeine. It may have to do with the proteins in the coffee, especially if you're gluten intolerant. That's pretty crazy. And we know that the Steve Wright answers, and we know that caffeine in coffee in some studies has been shown to be a gut irritant. So the population of celiac and non-celiac gluten sensitivity are dealing with a gut that's already inflamed, broken down, or at least more susceptible to that if you're already healed from it. So just be careful when you have a gut irritant problem and you're dealing with it. And I've had, you know, hyperlinked all these things. So if we have these things going on, how does this really relate into what we talked about in the first podcast, which was this dependency cycle. Um, addiction has such a dirty connotation to it. It, you know, has this moral implication that, you know, you're an immoral or a quote unquote bad person because you have dependency. And that's not true. You have learned a set of behaviors or a behavior in response to stress, and it might be preventing you from fulfilling all the obligations of, you know, a satisfying adult life. That's how we're going to look at it, is being able to take on the challenges of life and be able to thrive through them, grow out of them, become more resilient, meet those demands head on. So if we're looking at our stress little diagram here, once I hit this you know, full stress level, I used uh, the full stress bucket uh, photo here to kind of illustrate how this, you know, you can visualize it. Let's go into my inadequate response that we talked about. And this could be a habit. And in this case, we're talking about the sugar and caffeine. So I'm overwhelmed. 
I want to get out of that state as soon as possible. What do I do? Well, maybe I reach for caffeine to try to stimulate myself. Maybe I'm on the verge of, you know, sleeping and I'm at work or, you know, you're watching your kids or something of that nature. Sleep is not an option. You can't nap. So boom, you reach for caffeine, you reach for sugar to, you know, push through and keep going. It's very natural. It's happening to a lot of people right now. And I don't mean natural by it should be a component of a healthy lifestyle, but it's just a normal um, part of what's going on with the majority of people. And that's why we're seeing overweight and, you know, chronically stressed and exhausted individuals walking around. These behaviors give us that momentary escape or sedation, or it just allows us to plow through it. Okay. It's that, you know, that term instant gratification. Think back to that slide where I was talking about the serotonin and your brain and the sugar and how fast that tryptophan will get to your brain to produce more serotonin combined with the excitatory effects of sugar. So you're getting a huge rush very quickly. This is the behavior that's been learned, that you can get this in your body and you will change your mood extremely fast. Now we're gonna contrast this, we're gonna go into this cycle. This is the cycle that I'm outlining, okay? Where we've included these little green arrows up here, all right? These green arrows, and you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't, and you're not seeing the slides, I'll include a link to the slides that you can get so you can follow along the diagram and understand what I'm talking about. But what we're doing here is, if you flip back to the first one here, we have this inadequate response after we are over our stress threshold, or we are, you know, if you want to think of it as the stress bucket, it's full, we're overwhelmed, we have the inadequate response. So how do we break this cycle? Well, there's two main areas that we can get into. Number one, we can look at our daily demands. Maybe there's a way that we can alter our career, you know, our school that can be removing a class, decreasing work hours. Maybe we can restructure our demands from family and friends a little bit. We can increase our personal needs. We can start adding or um, committing to a regular exercise routine, increasing exercise need be, maybe decreasing exercise. Maybe that's one of the stressors that is pushing you over um, over your threshold is maybe you're overtraining. Okay. You can also hear once we get and we are overwhelmed, this is where we have to start practicing helpful habits that is going to help us break this cycle. These can be helpful beliefs, thoughts, um, tools to change emotions. And we'll dive into that in just a little bit. A huge component here that you're going to see is on this one. I really want to emphasize that inactivity is not doing anything. It's not wanting to work. It's avoiding the work that's needed. Even if that work is only spending two to three minutes or even less jotting down a couple of quick ideas or trying to get some you know, thoughts out of your head and trying to reprocess them and reframe them. Action is paramount. You have to do, you have to do, you have to do something. You can't be ruminating on this. You, the level of inactivity that most of us are experiencing is, can, um, is always correlated to these increasing rates of depression and anxiety because we're not meant to just live sedentary in our heads. We have to be active. We are actively built to be moving around the world, influencing it through our physical abilities. You have to choose action, even if that action is just taking out a pen and piece of paper and writing it down. So I realize first and foremost that um, it is uncomfortable. It is painful. Or if you want to use that term, I don't like the term pain. I use that only to describe physical sensations like uh, as a result of if you were to have a physical injury. I like to think of it in terms of picking the discomfort that's going to lead to me growing and changing and adapting. 
choosing to expand rather than to sedate or escape. It's a huge concept, but it's really important that when we get to this state that we start making those choices. Our bigger solution is to re rebuild our resilience, and this can be done in daily achievable steps, all right? It's impossible to lose 30 pounds in a day or a week or generally even in a month unless you, you know, have a situation where you have a lot of excess weight, a lot of uh, water retention, things of that nature. Setting these types of goals, thinking about losing the 30 pounds is a huge, you know, they talk about like eating the elephant. This is huge goal that seems unattainable. So what you do is you break it down into a daily achievable step that you can take, that you can excel at. This path is absolutely stressful. If you have unrealistic expectations that it's going to be easy, you're going to start coasting, then that's when you're going to stop doing the work. If you have the expectation that you're going to go to the gym, maybe you hear, for example, this can often be really unhelpful for people. You hear, oh, it takes 21 days to form a new habit. and there's a little bit of scientific validity to that, that if I have a really bad behavior, that let's say, um, I've okay, we'll go back to the caffeine example. I'm drinking three cups of caffeine every single day. If I'm doing that and it's, and it's making my life worse, then when I first give up the caffeine, if I was rating my life quality on units of pleasure, we're going to see a decrease in daily pleasure, and that's going to last several weeks for drugs, for a lot of different behaviors. Around that day 21 mark is where you start to see it kind of slowly start to tick back upwards. So if me with caffeine, maybe it's interfering with my life, but I still rate how I feel in general every day. And I say, well, today I fell to five. As soon as I get rid of the caffeine, I'm going to feel less than a five for several weeks. I don't know, you know, depending on how serious the addiction is, you may feel terrible. Um, there's some opiate withdrawal stories out there that are absolutely horrendous that, you know, makes me feel like a wuss for even complaining about caffeine or sugar. But you will feel different levels of anxiety, depression, fatigue. Fatigue is often a huge one when you get you start changing these behaviors. That will occur. You will, your those daily units of pleasure will drop below that normal threshold that you're experiencing when you're actively using the dependency. And then, yes, it will take about 21 days to come back up to where you actually start to feel better and go, wow, thank goodness I got the caffeine out of my system because now before I was only feeling, you know, five units of pleasure a day. And now I'm feeling five and a half or six. But you have to have that realistic expectation that it's not just going to feel great. Even if you set a time frame, you will feel better and you need to focus on that improvement. If you rate let's say you uh your problem and you say wow this problem is uh, a 10 out of a 10 and you do daily work and after two weeks it's you rate it again and it's 9.7 or you know some other high number well you still have improved you have to focus on that technical improvement better is better don't forget that okay diving back into the slideshow here that's why we're making ourselves uncomfortable the said principle just reflect uh refers to specific adaptation to impose demands. We have to change. The person we are now has these patterns of behavior and we have our cycle for how we deal with life stressors. The way to change the outcome and hence change ourselves is to respond differently and practice new things, change who we are. Change is important and that's another expectation. There's no way to hack it. You see all these blogs and all this stuff about hacking this. The attempt of the hack 
mindset is to create a different outcome without really changing, and that's insanity. I think it was Einstein that said that doing something twice and expecting the same result, that's the definition of insanity. Life inherently includes pain. The pain of stagnation is worse than the pain of change. Another way to look at that is just, again, choose your stress. Are you choosing a stress that makes you expand and grow? Or are you choosing a stress that inevitably is going to beat you up and make you feel worse on a daily basis? The path that we are taking here, there's a general statement that appears in a lot of, lit um, a lot of cool books, a lot of great quotes. All humans seek to avoid pain and maximize pleasure. There's a problem with this, though, and it's how we're framing the belief about pleasure and how we're defining it. And I'm going to look at it a little bit differently, and I'm presenting this for the first time here. I'm sure somebody else is keyed in on this, so I haven't taken this from somebody else. Just letting you know that uh, this is something that I had to really work through in my own behaviors when I started to wanting to change, you know, being obese, sleeping 12, 14 hours a day, uh, responding unhealthy, abusing alcohol, gambling, other behaviors. These are things that I had to learn, and intuitively I kind of knew they already existed, but I just wanted a different, easier way, a.k.a. like the hack approach, which I know doesn't work. There are traditional method, uh, methodologies. You know, if you look at any religious doctrine or, you know, spiritual tradition, there's a reason they have their rules. There's a reason they're trying to cultivate a principle-based life, and that is um, to avoid this state of being that's this suffering that's unbearable. The term hell gets thrown around, obviously, generally as like an afterlife, like, oh, you were bad, you know, I'm going to spank you and put you in your room, and that room is internal damnation and fire. And there's a lot of traditions that still believe that, and, you know, I'm not going to dive into that right now. That's a whole other topic, but personally, my belief is that it's very counterproductive to creating healthy human beings. Instead, think of those teachings as creating a state of suffering right now that you want to avoid. Okay, think about that as being the hell. The hell is, you know, dragging yourself out of bed every morning, feeling exhausted and beat down, dragging yourself throughout life, being um, unhappy and antisocial, not having healthy, satisfying relationships, not having fulfillment and the, the work or the, you know, things that you have to be doing on a daily basis. Okay, suffering, yes, it is inescapable. That's a core tenet of Buddhism. That's one of the Pardon me, need a little water here. Um, that's one of the, oh man, I'm spacing on the term. Anyways, they got these oh, four pillars. That's the first pillar is that life is suffering. And the second one is that suffering is caused by desire. To escape that, they, the Buddhists claim, and I'm not a Buddhist, but I feel that these teachings do hold true, that the third pillar is that you seek to end desire. And then the fourth is that you do that with the Eightfold Path, which is a system of living. Okay, again, it's principle-based lifestyle design. We will not, though, experience days where we don't have some degree of distress. And to prove this, now, you know, if you have like a drug or an alcohol problem or a serious problem that can harm yourself and others, obviously you wouldn't do this with that substance, but construct what you think your ultimate pleasure day would be. So when I was in my 20s, that might look something like, you know, going out, uh, drinking at the clubs, dancing with beautiful women, gambling, uh, a super gluttonous meal, dessert. I mean, you know, I could ha definitely in inhale it all in one evening. How would you feel after, though? And this is where I'm getting into this paradox of pleasure. If that's how you're thinking of pleasure, if you're thinking of pleasure as physical highs, 
then you're absolutely going to feel terrible afterwards. You're going to have a crash. You have to have a crash. That goes back to our cycle here. Okay? There has to be the higher the high, the lower the low. There has to be a crash after that. But what if you define pleasure differently? And that's where we're getting to this concept of the triune brain because um, we really, it's really beneficial to think rather than having one brain that we have three distinct brains all trying to find the way to have their needs met. So when we think about physical pleasures um, where addictions lie, primarily they're going to reside here in the reptilian brain, which is our uh, uh, reproductive flight, fight, eat, you know, kill. All our responses that are antisocial are right here in this reptilian brain. Above that, during evolution, we grew the, or I don't know if you say grew, but we acquired the paleomammalian brain, which is where we developed love, kinship. And then over that, finally, the last of the brains is this neomammalian brain, the neocortex. When you talk about destructive behaviors, this is where you can tie this into the triune brain theory. It was created by Paul McLean at... Uh, he won the uh, Nobel Peace Prize in 1950-something for it. But you talk, you know, when people talk about rationalization, how could that person do that? It's so obvious that we, with our rational thinking brains that that person's behavior was destructive. Well, what they're doing is they're trying to satisfy an urge or a demand by one of the lesser brain systems, particularly the reptilian brain, that does not lead to long-term happiness. It's those short-term highs, those you know pleasure rushes. That's why it's important to start thinking of pleasure differently and start thinking of pleasure as residing. If you think of pleasure, an example I can use is, well, I have two examples. Rather than using pleasure to, let's say, think about you know uh, a huge a huge bowl of ice cream, which would be a reptilian pleasure, think about a pleasure of doing an amazing day with you know your children or your loved ones or your friends that's going to be residing up here you're going to be having those emotional fulfillments you're going to have that connection that community family connection above that maybe you're doing something that's really stimulating your rational brain taking a museum watching an amazing movie or you know viewing amazing art those are the types of pleasures that you can absolutely have without long-term detriment. Or sorry, detriment. That's why I think it's important that we start talking about pleasure differently. Think about the pleasures of the reptilian brain here as being, you know, those temporary highs that are going to lead to the crashes. If you can moderate it, that's awesome. If you're the person that can have, you know, one drink and feel satisfied, yeah, that's great. That can absolutely be a part of a healthy, happy lifestyle. If you're the person that can have a scoop of ice cream and savor it and you feel completely satisfied afterwards, well, I'm a little envious of you and, you know, <laughs> and I don't like you, but no, I'm just kidding. But uh, no, but that will work for you. But if it doesn't, then we have to, again, look, go, start to go back and start to ask some, you know, really important questions to change these habits. And the biggest one is going to be the context that we're doing this in. It's one thing to start trying to change our health to fit into a bikini to go to the beach. Maybe that's a great goal in the beginning. Maybe that gets you there. But as far as creating long-term happiness, that context is very uh, shallow. I would say it still resides probably in the reptilian system or maybe, maybe a little bit in the mammalian brain. 
But what if we create this huge context where we have to establish meaning for ourselves and we're going to derive our meaning from experiencing life in all these different ways that we currently aren't. Maybe we see that, oh, yeah, if I lot, you know, if I was 30 pounds lighter, I'll have a much more active life with my family or my friends. Or maybe I've been wanting to get into a, an activity that requires being physical, but I can't because of my body weight or I can't because I'm too weak. Creating this context and creating meaning for ourselves and pursuing that, we have to have an aim and we have to feel progress in order to feel satisfied. That's huge. You have to have the aim and you have to feel like you're making progress towards the aim. Regardless of the circumstances, you can deal with a lot, even the stressors that are like throwing you out of whack right now or maybe are, are unbearable. You can deal with a lot of hardship in life if you have that overall meaning, that context, that goal, and you feel that you're progressing towards it on a regular basis. So we can start pursuing these meaningful activities that are going to create our, our new mind, our new body, enhance our community, change our environment. And really, it's interesting because we, gen we have this thing as humans where we take on, we instinctively take on a higher challenge once we conquer something. And if you have children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's exactly what my sons do. As soon as they can jump off something, they're immediately looking for something an inch or two or a foot higher, or even sometimes even higher than that. Sometimes they're going crazy and you know you have to watch them and like, oh man, I don't know if he's gonna make that, but they generally seem to pace themselves appropriately most of the time. But the point is, is that we have this drive to experience more, to conquer, to do higher level things once we learn it. It's a in my belief, and I believe that our biology and sociology and psychology and all these other fields of study are really validating this more and more, that there is this drive inside of us to do more, to fulfill ourselves, and that's where the meaning is going to come from. There's this awesome book, well, several books written by Joseph Campbell, but one is called The Hero's Journey, and it outlines a lot of pretty much all the classical religious doctrines and it shows the same similar pattern that the hero has to go through and how it ends up helping humanity and there's these same steps so imagine if rather than thinking of your current predicament in the way you're thinking of it that makes you depressed or anxious what if you start to create yourself as a hero and that comes down to our beliefs and we definitely have to believe that it's possible and our faith Faith, as it's generally used, will be faith in God. Some people, that works awesome for them. If you're more scientifically minded and you're struggling with the concept of God, that's fine. You can use faith in people. You can look around and you can see that other people have achieved the same things that you want to achieve. And you can ask, how do those people, what do they think? How do they handle situations? What is their response? When things get tough, would they respond the same way I'm responding now or would they respond differently and more in a way that creates a different outcome? There's some great quotes out there about um, like stress and anxiety is excitement without the breath. Very high performers, there's a lot of people who talk about giving speeches or athletics and they're not in a calm, submissive state. They're experiencing all the same adrenaline rushes and the same quote unquote nerves that we're experiencing. But they know how to harness that and actually increase their performance rather than a hindering performance. 
So start tapping into that. Start creating this context that's going to create this meaning. Look at different, you know, they call them archetypes, different heroes from different myths. Look at how they handled their challenges. A lot of people derive that meaning from, you know, the Bible or other religious uh, texts. And those things can absolutely be completely helpful if you're using them properly. You're creating a better, you're really trying to create this outcome that you can envision. I often think of it, I believe the first time I heard it was uh, through a Buddhist lecturer named Lama Maru, but there's this concept of the ideal self. And if we close our eyes and we envision how great we can handle, you know, our life, how great of a parent I can be, how great, you know, of a mentor I can be to others, how I can respond to these challenges and how I can personally take action to move my culture, my society, my community, whatever level you feel like, you know, is right for you, whatever you see that you can achieve, that's the ideal self. And let's start moving forward by doing this, you know, what I like to think of as a bigger revolution cycle. We're looking back and we're seeing that even though we still have the same demands, we have the same daily demands, we have our personal needs, our career or school or family or friends, all components of an adult life, we may still get our stress bucket may still fill up. We still may hit our threshold, but now we are starting to add in key elements. We're starting to add in ways of coping before we reach our stress threshold. And just as, or arguably more importantly, we're handling it differently with a planned response. Once we hit that, um, threshold once our stress bucket is overfilled and we have that you know boom that last thing and that sends us to wanting to you know go to the gallon of haagen -Dazs. does haagen -Dazs come in gallons wait a minute no i don't think so it's been a while since, since i had i used to always have pints my worst night was three pints <laughs> that'll be a story for another day but anyways um but our planned response we practice helpful habits we have practice helpful beliefs we can practice helpful thoughts the emotions might be the most difficult one, but we can breathe, we can cultivate new emotional experiences, but we can really start to dissect and reinterpret the stress. We can see, okay, this is a chance for me to adapt. This is that said principle, the specific adaptations to impose demands. Life is giving me the stress and rather than it breaking me down and decreasing my health and my strength and my vigor, it's going to actually boost me. It's going to be my chance to grow stronger in response to this because I'm going to handle it appropriately. And we're looking at creating a better outcome. And that doesn't mean that every single time we're not going to experience, you know, depression or anxiety or we're not going to feel anger. It's these emotions, this, these, uh, quote unquote, you know, bad emotional states go away. No, we might still feel those, but they might be decreasing. You have to be objective with this. If you can look at it and you, you know, say, well, I'm depressed and you rate it and you're, and you're doing the work and you're cultivating these new behaviors and that it's moving in the right direction, then it is improving. And you have to focus on that improvement and keep going. And I can't say that enough. We talked a little bit about, you know, creating a larger context. Some people get that from uh, religious meaning and religious documents and religious practices. Others might use some of that or none of that, but there's also, you know, cognitive behavioral tools. We can challenge the thoughts and beliefs that we currently have. Whenever we're pissed off and we're frustrated and angry, we're going to be thinking in very generalized terms. We're going to say, this always happens. This person is blah, 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 blah. And, you know, or, you know, um, life is this. I am this, you know, 
that's where we can really, when we're at our threshold or over our threshold, that's where we can really start to see what's going on with our beliefs and our thoughts. And there's a way to go in there and actually start to challenge them, not only in the moment, but just throughout the day. That's where a lot of people see great success using a mantra where they look at an unhelpful belief, some unhelpful thoughts that they're experiencing, and they write a new script. They say, okay, this, this set of beliefs and thoughts is creating this outcome, and I don't want to experience this anymore. And I'm going to write these new beliefs and these new thoughts, and I'm going to practice and rehearse these every day. And, you know, there's that quote, fake it till you make it. And there's a lot of people who have written some great books about doing just that, that they start acting and behaving and thinking and believing in new ways. And it's not a static process. It's not just this steady increase. There's been estimates that we think 50 to 60,000 thoughts a day. So if you know, I'm used to thinking about how miserable I am and that I'm not powerful and I can't accomplish anything and life is, you know, out to get me and blah, blah, blah. Things are terrible. And I'm rehearsing that script over and over again. Then, yeah, adding the new ones, it's going to take a little bit of time because if I'm only practicing those new ones a couple dozen times or a hundred times a day, it's going to take time to blossom and grow to where it's occupying enough space to, you know, disperse and get rid of enough of tens of thousands of thoughts that aren't helpful or whatever the number is, just throwing numbers out there. I don't know. So there's amazing resources out there. When I first started working on depression and trying to change it, and just some uh, phar pharmaceutical methods that I tried, which turned out not to be helpful, but you know, it was a beginning crutch and that, I shouldn't say crutch, sorry, that's the wrong word. It's a beginning tool, it's in a, it's in a good assistance. Absolutely, if you can boost the way you feel temper you know, for a while, that's gonna be good. I encourage everybody to use medication if you're super depressed or um, experiencing high levels of anxiety, it might be a good tool for you. That's, you know, for you and your doctor's side, it's obviously beyond the scope of, you know, what a what my company or podcast is here for. But just know that when you start to do those things, you still need to work on those thoughts and beliefs. And you need to get in there and you need to ask, what are the principles, beliefs, thoughts, and responses that the people who are experiencing what I want to experience, what, what are they doing? Start copying that. Okay. Um, thank you for listening. Figuring out the RSS feed challenges. This should be posted very soon, and I'll be downloading the links, um, putting it on our business page, putting it on my personal page, just kind of trying to spread this as a resource. Any feedback is always welcome, even if you think it's total shit or I'm totally wrong. That's cool, too. Try to elaborate a little bit when we see this, you know, social media feedback nowadays, you know, it's like, oh, you're an asshole or you're an idiot or, you know, all this trolling that goes on. Um Maybe that person actually has a valid point. Maybe there's something that isn't being explained clearly, or maybe that's that thought and those beliefs are just so incompatible. But anyways, we're trying to create, we're trying to have these discussions so that we can all move forward and experience different outcomes or experience greater returns on what we are doing. So it's really important to start communicating clearly with one another. Any feedback is welcome. If you learned anything, I would uh, really appreciate, obviously, if you share it and let other people know who might want to start changing the way they look, change the way they feel, change you know how their body's functioning. If they want to be leaner, stronger, healthier, that's exactly what we're here for. So, um, let us know how we're doing. Send a, send your notes, post below, whatever email. We have all our contact information, obviously, out there. Get a hold of us. Let us know what you need too. That's you know I. In the beginning here, this is going to be about the changes that I've made and the changes that I've studied about and the changes I've helped other make, uh, other people make. As we move forward, though, this is all gets going to grow into 
a resource for people trying to go through many different types of changes. And we need to start identifying and practicing the principles um, regardless of what the behavior in question is. We need to start getting those principles dialed in so that we can all, you know, like I say, get healthier and better. Thank you very much. Have a great evening. Talk to you again later this week. Bye. to start making some changes let's change the way we eat let's change the way we live and let's change the way we treat each other you see the old way wasn't working so it's on us to do what we gotta do